The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 6 through 24. It can be found on page 925 in the Black Bibles. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remain in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The word of the Lord. Tofe, thank you for reading for us this morning, and thank you all for joining us. My name is John Trapp. I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King. Great to see all of you here with us this morning. I want to welcome you, especially if this is your first time to Christ the King, and want you to know that this is a room full of people who think that we need help. Uh, a hymn from our tradition is um, called Come Ye Sinners, and I want to read to you a line from that hymn. It says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Otherwise, it's this invitation to sinners. It's saying, don't let... Oh, hell, hold up one second, y'all. This is my cochlear device that I'm preaching with for the first time ever today. And it just fell off my ear because the magnet's not strong enough. We're just going to go without it. Here we go. Spirits at work. All right. What's going to happen next? Anyway, uh, this, the hymn says, Let not conscience make you linger, 
nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. The only fitness that the Lord requires is that we would know that we need him. And then, you know what the song says next? This he gives you. Even the ability to feel our need of him, he gives it to us by his grace. So, you're in a room of people who believe that we need this kind of help. So, if that's you, welcome. And if, that's, if you don't think that's you, I want you to, I want to maybe try to convince you of that this morning. So, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we do give you thanks that you, um, that you, care about our needs, that you care so deeply, Lord Jesus, that you promised to send us your helper. And so we pray now that your spirit, the Holy Spirit, would help us to understand these words, uh, that the Holy Spirit would help us to apply them to our lives and help us to see our need for you and your great provision for our need. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to frame this sermon this morning, which is entitled, When God Helps, by telling you about a story that I read from a book called Small Miracles. It's a collection of true stories, mostly from the 20th century, that was compiled by two Holocaust survivors. And it's true stories that seem miraculous. And one of the stories that they told that they compiled is about a man who was walking home from work one night. He worked in Manhattan. He had stayed late in his office working to close a deal. And on his way home, it was late at night, he wanted to get home quickly, and so he decided to cut through part of Central Park to shorten his commute. Well, as he walked through that park, and again, it was desolate, it was late into the evening, there was not many people around, he heard the unmistakable cry of a woman who was crying for help. He could tell from the cry that it was coming from the direction of a bush that was across the field from where he was, and he froze. He froze and he wondered to himself, what should I do? Because if I respond to this cry for help, I don't know what will happen to me. I have a wife. I have grown children. If I put myself at risk, what what would happen to me? What would happen to them? And so he froze. And he asked himself that question. Is it worth it? Should I go? And that's, that's kind of what's happening here in this passage. There is a cry for help that's issued in this vision that's sent to the Apostle Paul in verse 9. This man from Macedonia in verse 9 says, Come over to Macedonia and help us. We need help. And so I want you to see how God helps and when, what happens when God helps. So three points, how God helps, first point. Two, who God helps. And then finally, the result of God's help. How God helps who he helps, and the result of God's help when he helps. So first, how he helps. This is the paradigm throughout all of scripture. God rescues somebody, he helps them, 
somebody who doesn't deserve it. God rescues somebody by grace and then after saving them, he strategically locates them so that they can also be a help. And that's what happens here with the Apostle Paul. We've got to remember who Paul is. Paul, who formerly was known as Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, whose objective in life, right before he was converted, was to wipe Christianity off the face of the planet, killing Christians. That's who Saul was, that's who Paul was, and now this same person is being beckoned into helping. But I want you to see all the things that happen, that have to happen to get him to the place where he's ready to help. It's like, I think they're called, you know, the, it's called a Rube Goldberg machine. It's those things, if you've ever played the game Mousetrap or watched the deep cut TV show McGee and Me, it's like the thing where like one thing like tips over into another thing and hits over the dominoes and that like sends the race car into the little army man who falls over and it goes into the bucket and then like in McGee and Me it turns on a kiss kid's pencil sharpener, it's like the most extra pencil sharpener ever and he just sharpens his pencil and starts to draw. I thought it was the coolest thing ever when I was a kid. So that's kind of what happens in these first four verses that were read for us. Because you see in verse six, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they're like, we're going to Asia. And then the Holy Spirit says, no. And then what happens next in the chain reaction? When they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus said, no, did not allow them. Chain reaction. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. They get to Troas. Next chain reaction. Vision come to Macedonia and help us. It's just these one domino falling after the other. And I want you to see that all of this, A, would not, it would have taken some time. Like they're, they're getting rerouted and this isn't like a 10 minute Siri rerouting that's happening. This is like two or three weeks of travel by foot going from one place to the next and each time they get there, they think they're about to get to work and the Holy Spirit is just guiding them and directing them to the place where he wants them to be. And the purpose of this story is not that you need to have a vision so you can know where God wants you. What I want you to know is that this story affirms that wherever you are situated this very day, it's because God wants you there. God's just as involved as you being where you are right now in your home, in your neighborhood, in your family, with your roommates, wherever you are in your workplace, wherever you are right now, God is just as sovereign and involved in every single little mechanism that got you to the place where you are presently. And what God does in this is he strategically locates us so that we can participate in his help. So my question for you is, where has God brought you? In, in whom's life has God placed you? A great place to start with answering this question is to look around at where you are. Like, who are your coworkers? Who are your siblings? Who are your parents? Who's your spouse, if you have a spouse? Who are your neighbors? Um, there's a pastor who... He doesn't know he's a mentor of mine, but he's kind of a mentor of mine. He's just, I think he's great and admire him a lot. I remember one time, this is about 10 years ago, he was speaking at a youth leaders conference when I was a youth pastor. And he gave us this kind of pile of documents that have been a help to him 
over the course of his life. It's like poetry and short stories and theology. And I, mean, I still have it. I still go through it all the time. And I was right tucked in the middle of that. He put a list of his, what he called his guiding principles for ministry. Kind of core values for him that have shaped him as a minister of the word. And I'm you know, reading through it. And it's a lot of you know, theological stuff and, and just kind of like ordering your life. But one thing that just jumped out to me. This is somebody who's at, you know, in my mind, this like big important church, probably lots of big important people in that church. And in, right in the middle of this document, he says this, I believe the single greatest discipleship opportunity that the Lord Jesus has put in my life is my children and my grandchildren. That of, of all these people that he could be discipling, of all these people that God has placed in his life, who has God put in his home? He says, that's where I have to start. And like I said, I was a youth pastor here actually at this church from 2008 to 2014. And while I was here and kind of learning about the city of Houston and meeting all kinds of people from the city of Houston, one of the things that I learned is that there's like a type of parent in Houston. And this parent is involved in like all kinds of ministries and nonprofits in the city. They're maybe on like four different boards. They're recruiting for volunteers. They're driving all over the city doing stuff. They're fundraising. But what was interesting to me is that sometimes it's these very parents whose children would sit across the table from me and tell me that they barely knew their mom and dad. And what we see here in this passage is that we're called to love whoever God puts us right in front of. But you know what? In some ways, that's harder than just putting on your ministry hat and kind of like walking into like another space that you're not typically in, doing your ministry thing, and then taking off your ministry hat and walking back into your home and putting up your feet and turning on the TV. What's much harder is to put on your ministry hat as you walk into your home with your annoying roommate or your spouse. I didn't say they were your annoying roommate. I don't know, you, can feel, you can figure that out. But, or with your siblings or with your neighbors. That is much more difficult to do. And yet, friends, I think that's what we're called to do. And, and I... Kids in the room, there's not a lot of kids in the room, but if you're a kid in the room, if you're a teenager in the room, you know, one of the things that that means, I, I actually believe this. And, I, and parents, I, I want you to teach your kids this. This means that God has strategically placed not only you, but also your children in places where they can be a better like minister than you can or than even I can, and I have a master's of divinity. But they can be a better minister because God strategically located them in that classroom or on that sports team. And that's true for you. So who has God placed, where has God placed you and who's there? I want you to ask yourself that question. Who are your neighbors? Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon in their book, The Art of Neighboring, say, we don't love our neighbors in order to convert them. 
we love our neighbors because we are converted. Do you hear the difference there? Our neighbors aren't like our little like Christian project that we are like selling our religion to. And we're, we're gonna love them kind of to get to this like as a means to an end. They are the end. They are our neighbors and we're called to love them because we're converted, because we've received God's help. We've received his grace when we didn't deserve it. And so we get to participate in expressing his grace to others. So I want you to see who these others are. Who does God help here in this passage? Well, first off, there's Lydia. Lydia is a dealer in purple cloth from Thyatira. That means that she's wealthy. She's a fashion dealer. She's a member of high society. She has her own household. Lydia is, she's she's religious. When, When Paul goes up to this place of prayer, Lydia's there. She's a worshiper of God, which is a technical term for a Gentile who recognized the God of Israel as the one true God. But I want you to see what even though, even though Lydia seems to have her life together, even though Lydia is religious, Lydia doesn't come to know the Lord unless something happens. Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It's what, it's what we said in our hymn earlier. This he gives you. Like all you need, all, all the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him, this he gives you. God opens Lydia's heart to hear the gospel here. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you think to yourself, okay, preacher man, if God does the opening, then like why even, why even share the gospel with people? Like if he's gonna do what he wants to do, then why even evangelize? Listen, my argument to you in that would, would be, I can't even begin to evangelize unless I believe this is true. Because if, if it's not God who's opening the heart, you know who that means it kind of has to be? Like you and like how well you argue and how well you witness and how precise your theology is and how well you answer all the questions. You've got, you've got to do the work of opening the heart, or they have to. They've got to open their heart. They've got to be convinced well enough by your arguments. Here's the good news of this. The good news is God can take, God doesn't need my A-plus sermon or testimony or witness for somebody to open their heart. Praise the Lord. I couldn't stand on the stage if I believed that. What that means is God can take my D minus or my F witnessing. God can take my F sermon, sorry if that's today, and he can take it and use it to open people's hearts. So what that means is we're not the hero, he is. We do though get welcomed into participating in bringing his help to the world. And that is incredibly freeing it's incredibly dignifying for him to give us that responsibility. We're welcomed into that. So I want you to see who else though God targets here. 
who else is like kind of in this chain reaction? God's like, no, not, not Bithynia, not Asia, not Troas. Like you gotta keep going, go to Macedonia because I want you to meet Lydia there and I want you to meet a slave girl. The next conversion in the church of, this is the, what becomes the church of Philippi, which the book of Philippians is written to. The next conversion that we hear about is this slave girl. And she couldn't be more different from Lydia. Lydia's named in the story, the slave girl isn't. Lydia owns things, this slave girl is owned. She's owned by her masters, she's owned by demons, and yet I want you to see she's just as important as Lydia to the beginning of this church. And it's an interesting passage. It's not totally clear why Paul is so annoyed. It says Paul is annoyed with this girl in the passage. The commentators that I read as I studied, it seems to be that the reason that Paul is annoyed is because this woman is acting like she is on their side. If you look at verse 17, it says, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. I mean, you'd think like Paul would be like, sweet, thanks for, um, I mean, I'm trying to like make everyone else believe that, so thanks for saying that for us. But she's demon possessed. And she's been prophesying in front of these pagan temples. So what Paul doesn't want is her and her worldview kind of like aligning and confusing people with what he's trying to teach, the, the truth of the scriptures of who God is. But what's, I think, particularly interesting about this, Luke says, and this, now, by the way, this is the first time that Luke is using um, first-person pronouns. So it's most likely that Luke has kind of, who's the writer of Acts, Luke's like joined in with them somewhere around, around Macedonia, and now he's telling you firsthand account of what happened. He also was compiling other people's accounts, but now he's telling you firsthand accounts. And he says, this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, Paul was greatly annoyed, he said. Now, can I be honest with y'all for a second? If there was a demon-possessed woman like bothering my ministry for one day, I'd be like, okay, we gotta have a meeting about the demon lady and like figure something out. But instead, it says Paul, Paul and Luke and this whole group of people, for many days, she's bothering them. For many days, she is an issue. And I think that there's something instructive about this to us. When relating to somebody who's been marginalized or who is in need, there is a temptation to try and just fix that person's problems without first listening to them, without first knowing them, without letting them be around you, without sharing communion with them. She's been around them for many days. And that's, it's only after that that Paul like does something. And y'all, this is what Jesus did. Jesus, there's a, there's a reason that Christmas and Good Friday didn't happen on the same day. Jesus didn't just like come to earth, immediately die, resurrect. and do, like, like Jesus came and what did he do? He was just among us. He was just with us. Like for like 30 years, he just fixed people's tables, I guess. That's like the Joseph's carpentry shop. 
Jesus just lived among us. And even when he was doing his ministry, the three years of his ministry, what you see in the Gospels is he's getting interrupted all the time. And he's so patient. He's so patient. And thank, thank the Lord that he is. Because it's in his patience and in his grace that he rescues us as well. Now, what I want you to see is with this story, I believe one of the things that it's teaching us, it's showing us that everybody matters. The church needs all kinds of people. And there is a temptation. I, so um, my job previously to this, I was a campus minister at the University of Texas. We kind of restarted this ministry um, seven years ago at UT called RUF. And there is a temptation when you're starting a ministry, you're kind of doing like a plant to just look for Lydia's. Like, how can we get the Lydia's, the, you know, the wealthy, the important, the educated, the religious, the people who are kind of already like doing the praying thing, how can we get them to our group? But what I want you to see in this passage is that this slave girl is, she's not like a throw-in token, like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool, they did that thing with the slave girl, that's so nice. Mm. No, that's not it. She's just as important. She is just as important as Lydia, and by the way, the, the third con conversion, spoiler alert, next week, is a Philippian jailer, a Roman jailer. Talk about a weird first church planting meeting that would have happened. Like, wealthy, educated, successful woman, slave girl who was formerly demon-possessed, and enemy of Israel, Roman jailer who had just imprisoned all of our missionaries. Let's pray. Like, that's it. But you know, what would have, you know what would have been true about that group? That slave girl, she would have been able to share the good news of Jesus to certain people in that city in a way that Lydia never could. There's people in, there were people in Philippi who would have heard the good news of Jesus from the lips of, of the slave girl in a way that Lydia could never speak. Same, same is true about the Roman jailer. The same is true about Lydia. It's not that like one of them's a token, but the other ones are like who we really want. They need everyone. Everyone is important. And what we see is that the Lord, by the power of the Spirit, is moving to bring each one of them in. And it just, this would have like blown Paul's mind. The, there's another pastor I would preach on this and he made this observation. I, I had never heard this before. so interesting. Um, many Jewish men in the first century, when they would pray, particularly the Pharisees, a, one of their common prayers that they would often pray was this. Maybe in the morning, maybe in the evening. Thank you, God, for not having made me a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. How's that prayer? Now, I want you to see who is it who are the first members of the church of Philippi, a Gentile woman and a slave girl. They all matter. We need them all in the church. They all equally need the grace of God and God is targeting all of them. He wants to bring them all in. So what's the result of this help from the Lord? The result of God's help well, one of the things that we see is that God is bringing joy. 
He is determined to bring people into his joy. And so he sends Paul right to Philippi so that they could know the joy of the Lord. Paul later writes to the church in Philippians in Philippians 1, 24, 25. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul wants to see them continuing in the joy that they've been brought into. But y'all, that joy comes at a cost. Part of the result of participating in God's help is paying a cost. Because after Paul and Silas free this young slave girl, they are beaten with rods and thrown into prison. There is a cost. And that's, that's the question that the man in New York was thinking about, the cost. What's the cost if I go into that bush across the field? And as he was thinking that, he heard once again the woman's cry, help! And so he began to run. and He ran across the field and he jumped into the bush and he found a man standing over this woman. He tackled the man. The attacker was so afraid that he jumped up and ran away, but the woman thought that another attacker had shown up. And so she said, get off of me, get off of me, get away from me. He said, no, it's okay, you're safe, it's okay. And she said, dad? It was his little girl in that bush. Friends, the Lord Jesus has jumped into the bush for you. And what he welcomes us to do is to go and to jump into the bush for others who are crying out for help. And you know what you find when you do that? When you jump into the bush, what you find is your family. You find your family. Can you imagine how quickly he would have moved across that field if he had known who was in the bush? It was his family. Y'all, that's who's in the bush. We were in the bush. We were in the bush and listen to what Paul tells the church of Philippi to remember. He says, listen, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He jumped into the bush. And anyone who would cry out to him for help, he will come to you. He will come to you and rescue you. Have you cried out to him? Have you, have you admitted to him your need for his help? Or do you trust in yourself to get out of the bush on your own? Cry out to him for help. And friends, if you have received that help, then let's consider what it would mean for us to jump into the bush for those who God has put right around us. The many people in our lives that he's put right around us. Perhaps they're struggling with physical health or mental health or addiction or joblessness or infertility or grieving 
God has put them all around us. God has put refugees in our city who are right around us. God has put sojourners in our zip code who are right around us. And he's located our church here. And he's also put people in your specific life, your roommates, your children, your grandchildren, your spouses, your siblings. Let's think about what it would mean to bear the fruit of the spirit, which means, right, fruit of the spirit, God's help. God has to do it. If we bear the fruit of the spirit, to those that he's placed us right around. Let's start there. Let's start there and know that we can begin in the peace knowing that God is the one who's gonna ultimately do the work. He'll do the heart opening. He'll bear the fruit. It will be him. And he welcomes us to participate in his help for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we, we do give you thanks that you um, are so committed to rescuing this world that you would send your precious son into the bush to save us. Jesus, we thank you. Um, we thank you that you did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made yourself a servant. And so we pray, Lord, for those who have been rescued by you, that you would make us more like yourself, sanctify us so that we too can be servants. And we also pray for those in our midst, even now who have not yet cried out to you for help, that they would see that you are a good and faithful king who has taken the role of a servant that they might be welcomed into your communion for eternity. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.